1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
0: The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans? And that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world.
1: How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my
0: name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything.
1: Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. I'm Angie, and today I have a very, very special guest. I'll be talking with Dr. Robin Moore today. He is the Communications Director of Global Wildlife Conservation. His specialty is amphibian conservation. So yes, it's all about amphibians today. So get ready, put your seatbelts on. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and Dr. Moore is also a photographer and author uh, he may not promote his book, so I'm going to right now. It's called In Search of the Lost Frogs, and it was named one of the Guardian's best nature books in 2014. So it's a must read for any of you nature lovers out there. And Dr. Moore is also a fellow podcaster. He hosts a podcast called No Filter, and so we'll talk a little bit more about that towards the end of the episode. He is also a co-founder of Amphibian Survival Alliance. And he's going to be chatting with me today all about the Sewankus water frog. And I'm just so happy to have him here. And please stay tuned. You're going to learn a lot. You're going to fall in love with amphibians if you're already not. And hopefully learn a lot today from a conservation expert. So welcome, Dr. Robin Moore. Thank you for being here today.
0: Thank you very much for the intro. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Oh, I know. It's it's so it's so lovely to have you and your expertise because we talk about amphibians and reptiles on the podcast here and there as we cover different species, but as a mammal physiologist, I sometimes struggle with a little bit of the concepts or I'm just not they don't come as naturally to me, so I really love the fact that we have an expert on today that is going to Tell us all about amphibians, answer all of our questions, and then also share with us the amazing journey of the Swankis water frog and Romeo. So for those of you that have been living in a cave and you haven't heard about Romeo, the lonely Bolivian water frog who's not so lonely anymore, Dr. Moore is going to share that story. But before we jump into all that, I just want to know Tell me a little bit about yourself, so our listeners can get to know you and your background and how you got to where you are today.
0: Sure. Um, so I grew up in uh, Scotland. Um, as a kid, I would spend a lot of time. Well, we went <laughs> spent our summers uh, vacationing in the northwest, which is basically just moors and bogs, and uh, to me, it was. Uh, just a, a, a wonderful environment to explore. So I would spend every waking hour exploring. And um, in Scotland, we don't have a huge amount of diversity of wildlife. So, um, but what we do have, we have frogs, we have newts, we have toads, uh, we have lizards, we have snakes. And those were sort of my entry point to, to nature. Um So I would spend a lot of time looking for newts and for frogs and for toads. And just fascinated by them Um, to me, they were, they were like little kind of like living dinosaurs. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There were sort of a a connection with, with the past. And I think what, what kid doesn't love dinosaurs? You know, I, I was fascinated by dinosaurs and yet here we had these little, little creatures that had rubbed ankles with the dinosaurs Um, And here they were, still alive. And I think what intrigued me about them, too, was you could actually collect the spawn. You could bring it into your bedroom and raise the tadpoles. And it was kind of like watching evolution on speed. Right, yeah. You know, in in a couple of weeks, you you were seeing this, like, just change and metamorphosis from this denizen of the water to this denizen of the land, you know? Um, and that was just incredible to me, just fascinating to, to watch that. Um, so I grew up just with this, this fascination with, with amphibians, reptiles. I don't really know where it came from. My parents weren't, weren't really into them. My brothers weren't into them, but I basically filled my bedroom in, in Edinburgh with tree frogs and salamanders. And I, you know, just wanted to be around them. Um, and then, so I went on uh, sort of an organic evolution myself to, to studying biology. Uh, as soon as I could, I, I went to the rainforest of West Africa to dissect chameleon poo for cool. a couple of months.
1: Um, I love poo. I'm a big, yeah, i poo fan.
0: I, uh, poo, poo is underrated.
1: Great. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be uh, yeah. great friends, Dr. <laughs> Moore. I love this. I love this. <laughs>
0: Uh, and I think I'd grown up watching David Attenborough, you know, nature programs. So I realized there was a lot more out there than what I was finding in <laughs> Scotland. So I was, I was just champing at the bit to get into the rainforest. And as soon as I did, I sort of, you know, I just, it whet my appetite for exploration and discovery. And I just wanted to do more of it. So I went on to do a PhD on a, a frog in Spain on an Island off of Spain, um, and then I went on to do a postdoc, but at that point I realized that, um, the academic path wasn't mm-hmm. really for me and I wanted to get more involved in conservation, applied conservation. And I'd wanted to work for, you know, an NGO, a nonprofit for a long time. So I actually got a, offered an opening at conservation international, heading up the amphibian program. Um, and I had to think for about two and a half seconds. Awesome. Before That's, accepting the that. That's
1: the best. That's the
0: best. Yeah, I drove, drove up from Florida to DC and that, and I've been in DC ever since. Um, I spent eight years at Conservation International and the last five years at Global Wildlife Conservation, um, broadening from amphibians to, to communicating, you know, species, uh, more broadly and, and the importance of protecting endangered Wonderful. species.
1: yes. And well, that's something, uh, my podcast partner, Dr. Chris Mortensen and I talk a lot about is, how to better communicate the science. It's very, that's I think a huge challenge in this day and age, as far as it's one thing to do mm. the research and make sure it's repeatable. Right. But then another thing to be able to interpret what the data means and then communicate it. And in, in a very, in a way that's well received and understood by the public. And that's, I think mm. definitely lacking. And so mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of your work at global wildlife conservation. And I think it, there's a science and an art to, to communicating uh, to the public, to the general public to, to help them understand and of course be empathetic to some of these species, uh, plights, right? Mm. So, uh, but mm-hmm. before we dive too much into Romeo and his story, before all this, I know growing up in Scotland, I, you, you painted a very beautiful picture of growing up around those bogs and, I grew up in the Midwest of Michigan. And so we had a few more species, but it was very similar. It was a lot of toads and snakes. And in fact, I was trying to explain to my five year old how I would catch gardener snakes and he was just super fascinated. And, but I'm like, we're in Florida. So don't catch snakes here because until you can, <laughs> you got to be able to tell if they're venomous mm. or not. Uh, mm.
0: I didn't have that concern right. and growing yes. up in Michigan. <laughs> so
1: it was, it was pretty lovely, but mm. do you have a story or an interaction with? an amphibian or reptile that basically helped solidify and, and inspired you to become a conservationist or just a good animal story for us?
0: I mean, <laughs> I don't know if it's a good story, but I I, I can remember vividly uh, moments that, that really solidified it for me. Uh, it was actually in my grandparents' garden in Edinburgh. Uh, Their garden was surrounded by a wall wall. And I remember I would climb up on the wall and in their neighbor's garden, there was a pond. And every spring, there'd be this writhing mass of of frogs. Uh, and I remember just feeling like an early explorer, climbing this wall, peering over and finding these frogs. And I felt like I was privy to something really special and unique um, and, and sort of a window to this wilder world. You know, here you are in a garden in Edinburgh and just over the wall was this incredible, incredible world. It reminded me a little when I growing up, there was this uh, children's show called Mister Ben. When Mister Ben would walk into a wardrobe and dress up as a cowboy or an astronaut, and he would come out and be in that world, and I kind of felt it by climbing on this wall. I was entering this other world, this this sort of wild world, and I would just I would just sit there and watch these frogs, you know, and it was just incredible to me that they would come in mass have this explosion of activity and then just disappear. and they would leave behind these little packets of uh, like jewels these these eggs that would then produce these tadpoles and I would I would just continue to watch watch this pond and monitor it and then see the little frogs hopping away and that was it for the year Um, so that for me is a very sort of uh, ingrained memory um, that I have of early that really sort of I, I think Took me from my, yeah, my childhood in Edinburgh and, and sort of transported me to this incredible world that, that opened up. And I don't think I've ever lost that feeling of, of feeling, uh, you know, like an explorer or, or just that thirst for discovery. And, and just, I think by observing these creatures, you know, uh, you just learn so much.
1: Curiosity is obviously really Present in most scientists, or at least it should be. And it's a definitely a driving force. And each week when I sit down to do a different species, I mean, we've anything from like a jellyfish to a blue whale to a, a bird. Sometimes I mm. am more excited about it than others. But then I, once I sit down and start actually diving into the literature, into the research and understanding differences and similarities, it's just so exciting. And I feel like a kid again and and that's for me why why the podcast is so fun and to help share with the audience what how other people got there and then now are Ooh. doing super great things uh with their careers and yeah I just uh I'm just really happy to share your story and since you're our amphibian expert just to for if we have some new listeners mm. can you briefly describe maybe some of the little physiological differences between frogs and toads or amphibians and reptiles so the listeners mm. can uh understand, you know, just be on the same page?
0: Sure. Well, I'll start with amphibians and reptiles because I think a lot of people sort of mistake newts for lizards or geckos. Um,
1: Salamanders, where are they? Yeah, right? yeah.
0: Um So reptiles have scales and watertight skin. Whereas amphibians have permeable skin. So that's the big difference. So amphibians are usually more reliant on moisture in the environment. They can't, you know, they can dry out more easily. Reptiles with -hmm. their scales, with their watertight skin, they're more adapted to say a desert environment. Whereas amphibians, that's why they love the peat bogs of Scotland, just this moist environment. Um, frogs and toads that's an interesting one because growing up in scotland we had a frog and a toad and often the, the main difference is toads have dry kind of bumpy skin frogs have moist mm-hmm. skin toads are able mm-hmm. to withstand more drier environments frogs are more reliant on on water on moisture um, toads tend to walk or hop and frogs tend to leap so there's like a, a difference in the, the pelvic bone that means frogs are, yeah, can leap, uh, have longer legs. Of course, once you travel outside of Scotland or, or the US, you find, uh, toads like the harlequin toads in central and South America that are these beautiful, colorful, smooth skinned, uh, creatures that look like a frog. Uh, and are often called okay. frogs. So you find, uh, mm-hmm. you find exceptions to every rule. Again, they, they're more likely to walk or hop. So that, that difference, um, stays, you know, stays there. Um, but I think it's also true to say that toads, you could call a toad a frog, but you couldn't call a frog a toad. So toads are kind of a subgroup of frogs. So it wouldn't be okay. wrong to say the harlequin toads are harlequin frogs and, and they're often referred to as that. Just, I think toads are sort of, uh, more maligned. You know, you got toad of toad hall. They're usually nefarious sort of creatures that are characters that <laughs> they have a bad rap. Um, but to me,
1: uh, Right. Like they supposedly yeah, give you warts if you touch untrue.
0: them. Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh yeah. I tested that hypothesis as a, probably as a seven year old. No, I was like, I it, it don't doesn't. think that makes sense. So it doesn't, but you know, the bumps and they <laughs> often
0: have these glands that do produce poisons, which makes them less tasty mm-hmm. to predators. <laughs> um, so as a sort of general mm-hmm. blanket rule, you know, if you find something that's got moist skin, there's, there's leaping, um, it's closely tied to the water. It's probably, it's a frog. Uh, something drier, able to live in more arid environments, bumpy skin. It's, it's a toad.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you for that very clear definition. I know that sometimes, like you said, there's sometimes crossover. And uh, most kids probably don't care, but, uh, but a lot of our adult listeners.
0: Yeah, like, yeah I want they to want to know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, and now, Robin, now that everybody's once again fallen in love with amphibians, for the naysayers out there, the people that maybe just think a frog is a frog or don't worry about amphibian conservation the way that you and your team does at Global Wildlife Conservation, why should people want to conserve amphibians? And what does their health represent for the greater ecosystems at large?
0: Yeah, so. One, one story that sticks with me, Wangari Mathai, the the late Nobel laureate, um, spoke about when she was a kid growing up, uh, in Africa and she would see these tadpoles in these streams near her house and they would collect them and, you know, um, when she went back years later, she found this dry stream bed Mm, and the tadpoles had gone and it, it, it was a visual, symptom of a sort of deterioration of the environment Um and that connected with me i think because it was sort of an appreciation of these tadpoles and these frogs as just a part of of her world growing up and i think for many kids it's it's you know who doesn't want to be able to take their kids looking at frogs and tadpoles and it, it just diminishes the richness of our world if we don't have them for those people who need a more practical reason. <laughs> um, they, Not they me, also, but I know they No, I, I know a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people, what's the point of frogs? I know it's, um they play a very important role in our ecosystems um as both predator and prey. So they eat things that we don't like. They eat disease vectors, crop pests, mosquitoes. So they keep those things under control. If if you lose frogs, if you lose salamanders and newts, um, you're going to have things out of whack, and you're going to get more of those insects that they eat. Uh, They also have they have a tadpole stage, most species, and a a land stage. So the tadpole stage actually helps regulate water quality. So they found that when you remove tadpoles from a system, you get more algae. You get again, just things go out of whack. And frogs have been around 350 million years. So they have evolved as part of a complex and interconnected ecosystem. So I think it's kind of foolish to think that we can just pluck that out and expect everything else to function as normal. Um, often they're very cryptic, so you don't see them as much as you see birds or, or mammals. Well, they found in in some forests, like in the northwest of the U.S., salamander biomass is actually greater than the biomass of other groups. Hmm. So they they contribute an enormous amount of biomass to the forest. And and there they've also found that they eat leaf-shredding insects that help contribute to uh, mitigating climate change. So insects are eating leaves, obviously that are are helping the tree absorb c o two from the atmosphere, if you lose the salamanders, you have uh, more of these insects that are eating the leaves so you have these complex uh, trophic cascades, I guess that when you lose the amphibians, you are affecting the whole food chain, and who'd have thought that taking the salamanders out would actually contribute to climate change but but there is actually that connection that has been discovered by scientists uh you know studying this
1: yeah well i've always kind of heard of them as canaries in the coal mine for the health of the ecosystem because they're since they are so sensitive and they is it that they breathe through their skin is that the best way to say it is, or is that?
0: Yeah. Yeah, they sort of have their lungs spread out over their body, which, you know, I think if we imagine walking around with our lungs on the outside, we'd be pretty sensitive to things we're pumping into the air or the water. And that's, that's what they've got going on. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, they're, right. they're, they're like a, a litmus test of the health of the, 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 the ecosystem. So you pump some pollution, you know, pollutants in the water, they're going to signal that. Um, so yeah, they're kind of a bellwether. Of, of health and canary in the coal mine. minor uh, uh, thing that saddens me a little about the, the anal- analogy is that nobody ever went down to save the canary whereas i think we should be trying to save the fronds
1: yes <laughs> yeah so it should be it, because once yeah, they're gone it should be like yeah. don't let them be the canary in the coal mine let's right. save them. we we, yeah. we know enough now to know better i suppose uh and there's yeah and there's
0: we talk about them being an early warning but it's not so early for them because they're if they're already gone right, right.
1: exactly <laughs> exactly and and speaking about you no know, as we've progressed in the last 20 30 years and and learning a lot more about different species and the importance of uh, reducing extinction or and or paying more attention to it uh there <clears throat> we often on the podcast have i don't want to say doomsday stories but you know, there's a lot of things that are looking kind of bleak and we don't want to draw, we don't want to depress people too much. And so I'm really excited to have you here today and to share kind of the meat and bones of the podcast about the Sawancus water frog and its conservation story. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, for those of our listeners that don't follow a lot of nature blogs or Facebook sites. Uh, for me, it was all over my feed uh, recently because it's the great news, the hopeful <laughs> news uh, about the Swankis water frog and Romeo. But if, yeah, if you wouldn't mind going to a little background about that conservation story, what the Swankis water, Bolivian water frog is and what its story looks like.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think it's a really important point that I think hope is a more powerful yes. motivator the yes. despair mm-hmm. or sadness. So I've always tried to sort of trade in, in hope. Um, and that was sort of the instigation behind the search for lost frogs, which I helped spearhead to uh, really, yeah, say, yes, it's a bleak landscape, but let's also focus on hope and, and what, what we're working towards. The Sawenka's so water frog was a really uh, interesting story. Um, 10 years ago, Uh, A team of scientists collected uh, one Soencus water frog from the wild and and took it into captivity. And the reason they did this is because uh, this lethal pathogen, a fungus, was sweeping through Mm -hmm. the habitat. And this this fungus, the chytrid fungus, has wiped out frogs from Central, South America, North America, every continent that they, they live in. It's it's really devastating. And sometimes the only uh, sort of band-aid solution is to collect the frogs to, to keep them safe. You can treat them in captivity until we've tackled this, the problem in the wild to put them back. So they collected a, a Sawancus water frog with the idea of, of establishing a sort of captive assurance colony to breed them, to, to have, you know, individuals that they could put back. The problem was but they never found another one. So they found this one male that sat in a tank waiting for others and they were looking and they just could not find a single other. So water frog in the wild. Um, so I think we all feared that the frog, you know, was extinct in the wild and with one individual left, you're you're not going to save the species. So it, it had been 10 years, you know, in this lonely, lonely tank, um, the species only lives up to about 15 years. So we were actually concerned that Romeo was at some point going to croak and be the last of his species. Um, so we decided to partner with, with the museum in Cochabamba, Bolivia, who, who house the, the water frog and come up with a campaign to try and get support to send people into the field looking, you know, a last sort of ditch attempt to find a mate for, for this frog. We decided it would be kind of fun to partner Mm -hmm. with a dating website. So we reached out to match.com and we said, you know, how about we create a profile for this frog that we started to call Romeo. Uh, And they were as excited as we were. And, and they, they got on board fully on board and said, that they would match anything that we raised online
1: wonderful. to
0: support these expeditions. So that, that was really wonderful too. And it really gave that sort of impetus to fundraising. So, so we launched that campaign actually on Valentine's mm-hmm. Day, of course, last year. Um, <laughs> and Romeo got a lot of love, you know, it, it, the story got out there. Um, and we raised enough money to send teams out to, to look for, for me.
1: And his, uh, just to interrupt really quick, his profile is we'll, we'll put it on the show notes for listeners that haven't, aren't familiar with the story, but can you tell us a little bit about what his profile, of course his picture. So maybe you can describe what he looks like, but then, um, if you could tell us a little bit about his profile.
0: Uh, yeah, I have to remember. It was over a year ago. We put it together, but, uh, we, uh, so, I mean, he's a beautiful looking yes. frog for one
1: very thing. handsome. He has this
0: incredible orange, uh, very handsome, incredible orange, orange belly that, and this sort of, he's, he's kind of big, bulky looking, these folds <laughs> of skin, uh, very distinctive. Uh, and one of the unusual things about the water frogs, their eyes mm-hmm. kind of face forward. So you can actually, you look at them head on, you know, you can, uh, yeah, you can make eye contact, which is kind of, I think very powerful. Um, and we decided to have a little fun with the profile match really uh, went to town and really helped. Pull yeah.
1: I was reading like, yeah, I was reading for, like, for it said, like I have a, <laughs> I have a Spanish accent, but I'm a pretty simple guy. I tend to keep by myself. I definitely want kids. I never married, you know, they really like anthropomorphized it, which I actually think is very yeah. clever. Right. And very, it makes people relate to it and we all know the more you can relate to something the more likely you are to embrace it right
0: yeah i think what connected with people was it's sort of a human story that they could relate to the loneliness aspect looking for love so we really did try to uh tap into that and to to build romeo's character you know i think it does build that emotional connection If you feel like you know Romeo or getting to know Romeo, we we created a Twitter, Twitter account for Romeo, or I should say Romeo created his own Twitter account. Uh, and you know, he's been, he's, he's got a growing following. Um, and again, just trying to, trying to give Romeo personality, uh, I think, I think really helped engage people. Just, just the act of giving him a name. And, and a frame of reference that people could immediately connect. Romeo, yes, they know that's, you know, story. Uh, I, I think there's so much noise out there. But when you're communicating these stories, it needs to be simple and, uh, connect with people immediately. And I think that's what this mm-hmm. did. They see it. Romeo, lonely frog, profile dot com. I get it. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: We've all been there, right? Yeah. So we really,
0: yeah. Yeah. And I, so I think, I think it's sometimes a fine line when you're anthropomorphizing animals, like how far to go. But I think just building out that character really just helped. And ultimately we wanted to connect people on that emotional level with Romeo and with his quest for love, which ultimately is what it was.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so you're able to raise some funds and there was a recent expedition to Bolivia to look for more matches for Romeo, more Swanki water frogs uh Can you give us an update on the expedition to the Bolivian cloud forest and uh how it went?
0: yeah, absolutely, so yes, yeah, so we raised the funding and then then came about the sort of task of planning the expeditions, so actually, the planning took nine wow. ten months mm-hmm. because. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we were going at the right time to the right place, maximizing the chances. So really looking at where where had been searched, where was the potential habitat. And then timing is everything with amphibians. You know, you want to hit it at the right time. So the plan was to go uh, around the same time of year that Romeo okay. was found. Um, so then uh, first st- stages were were going out, meeting with local communities. You always want buy-in from, from local communities. Whenever you're doing anything of this nature, you want, you want ground up support. Uh, and again, it's just a, it's a sort of PR opportunity. It's like you have this frog. We hope it's still there. This is why it's important. Um, and right. the people are always curious, you know, they're, they're um, to learn about what they have that that's unique or or special or or enough that people around the world <laughs> are emailing and writing asking about right. this frog. Um, so that was the first step was was these sort of expeditions to to meet with local communities, and then and then an expedition really to to try and find Romeo. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Romeo's mate. so Juliet. Um, and it was. It was at the end of the second day of the okay. second expedition. Um, and it, it sounds, you know, quick, but if you imagine that looking for these frogs involves wading up these cold mountain streams, plunging your hand under rocks, you're spending your, you know, your whole time, you, you, the water's in your boots. So you're wet, cold, and it's, it's grueling work. So that the team has spent a whole day. They were ready to pack it in. And they decided to do one more stream. Um, and Teresa, who works at the, the Centro Caira, at the museum in Cochabamba, um, she saw a toad jump into the water. So she went and thought, you know, I'll put my hand of the water, scour around the rocks. And she pulled out this frog with an orange belly. And she was like, immediately she knew it was a Sawincus water frog.
1: Cool. So she was
0: just absolutely
1: ecstatic. yeah i couldn't even imagine um, that's so cool yeah, yeah
0: yeah she you know she's been looking after romeo for 10 years wow. you know so mm-hmm. i don't think i really ever imagined that they would find romeo and me uh, after 10 years um the one they found was actually first one they found was actually another romeo so it was a male okay. so it was but to you know it was verification of species was still there so they kept looking until they had found um basically five individuals in this in this one pool wow, okay. um yeah so it turned out to be three females and two males so um so it was fantastic it was it was just yeah we were all just you know bouncing off um, the walls i know what do you, i mean you,
1: you hear that message and it's just it's just the most hopeful yeah. thing right it's just you know, I mean, it, it's, it's really yeah, incredible. So yeah. many expeditions yeah. don't, so, don't go this way. And so for it's not only, you know, if you find the one and it's mm. a male. So it's like, okay, at least they're around. And then you find a few more and there's uh, how many females did you say they ended up?
0: Uh, three, three females. females. So then
1: you end up with yeah. three females. Yeah. That's just incredible. Ah.
0: It, it was incredible. So then I, as soon as I heard, I basically got my flight down to yeah. Columbia. Um, to join the team to go and, and uh, document, um, you know, the, the area, the search, the, the team, uh, because obviously we wanted to tell the story. Um, so I got to go and visit the stream where they found Juliet, uh, and just the, the cloud forest was absolutely phenomenal. It was actually unlike any cloud forest I had seen. Um, I, I was able to take a drone to get an aerial Perspective, and it just—it stretched on for as far as the eye could see. This incredible cloud forest with these tree ferns that just gave me this real sort of primordial Mm -hmm. feel. You felt like this—you know—you a dinosaur could (laughs) have—you know—broken through the vegetation at any moment. It was that kind of like just had that feel of primitive being there for just for eons. So that was just phenomenal, and and really. You know, it's hard to imagine a beautiful, seemingly pristine environment like that without the frogs there. So it was just incredible to know that they are still there. And we have, you know, an option to, to try and bring them back to, um, you know, their previous abundance.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is that's that's the goal. Right. And so that leads into the next hmm. question. So this all this all happened in in February, like recently. Right.
0: Yeah, very recently, uh, January, I think we, January. right around
1: Valentine's Day.
0: It was a few <laughs> weeks before Valentine's Day, actually. Yeah. That we announced that Julia had been found. So yeah, it was, it was January. Yeah. Almost a year, you know, after the, the campaign.
1: Wow. That's just so incredible. And, What is the plan now for Romeo and his new friends, Juliet's and other Romeos?
0: So the plan now is uh, the first date. So before you put any, uh, animals together, you want to make sure that you've covered the risks of disease transmission or, so we did some pretty thorough screening to test both Juliet and Romeo for, for the disease. Um, and then Romeo actually has started showing, displaying the signs of being ready to mate, and Juliet has eggs, so it's actually breeding season right now. So I would suggest wow. watch this space very, very soon because within the next a mm-hmm. week or so, we will uh, we will be announcing what happened on the first date. Between Romeo and Juliet. So, so they, they
1: exciting. will,
0: <laughs> they will get to meet very soon. And, and then we just, we hope they hit it off. You know, Romeo's been alone for 10 years. So he's going to be a little rusty.
1: Sure, sure. But, hopefully it's like riding a bike.
0: I <laughs> uh, hopefully, you know, he's getting his nuptial pads. He's, 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 he's showing the signs of being ready to breed, which is, you know, it's incredible that that, that sort of biology well, is so yeah. strong. But.
1: Well, and I must ask, I'm a a big behaviorist. And so what are some of the either courtship behaviors or breeding behaviors that is is giving you signs to to, to let you guys know that he is potentially ready to meet his Juliet?
0: Yeah. So one of the big signs is the way that uh, many frogs breed is the male actually clasps the female Mm -hmm. uh, from behind or from, Mm -hmm. from the top. Um, and to do so, they actually develop these they're called nuptial pads uh okay. that help them that help them hold on so like on, on these, their
1: digits or
0: yeah where are these pads on their, yeah, so they're next to their thumbs, okay, yeah, cool, and so they develop them when it's when they're feeling ready um mm-hmm. so that that is a big sign of of being in in breeding condition, yeah. Um, uh, usually a lot of frog species, also the males call, you know, Mm -hmm. Romeo, uh, as well has been calling. Um, he, he was calling every year in captivity. He actually stopped last year. Okay. Um, so we were a little worried that he was, he was beyond breeding age, but we're very encouraged that he's showing these, these physical signs of being in breeding condition. And it might be that he, you know detects that there's love in the air uh we're not sure but he it's he's ready uh we've we've done the tests and they're both clear of the fungal disease which is fantastic news and they are both now ready to meet so so that first date will happen soon um and then we hope we hope that either they breed if you know um the process is that you know if they go into what's called amplexus which is when the male grabs a female it triggers her to release the Mm -hmm. eggs and it's external fertilization so he'll release the sperm and and fertilize the eggs and then you know you have the eggs that will hatch into tadpoles and i that would just be phenomenal uh result if, if we get Egg. So we're, we're really crossing our fingers. You, you know, you never know. Um, this species has never been bred in captivity. So we don't know much about its ecology or natural history. So we're, we're going to be learning with them as. Yeah. You
1: know, well, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's part of science. As the date progresses. Yes. Yes. You guys. That, yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's the risk and the challenge. But it sounds like you have an amazing team of specialists and scientists and conservationists and herpetologists to to have yeah. the best people in the world uh, working on this and that alone is going to give it the give it the greatest chance for success right
0: absolutely the, the team at the museum uh, in Cochabamba um, have a really good track record of breeding a very closely related species which is the titicaca water frog so they they have bred them in captivity yeah. and they have you know a network of expertise and we have a network of expertise and, and together we're really trying to bring in the, the world experts to to sort of uh advise and help implement this plan to to try and breed these animals so yeah you know we have we have the world's the world's experts and we're also speaking with one of the experts in gamete freezing so we would also like to to freeze the gametes so to give us options if, if they don't breed naturally even if they do breed naturally to uh, make sure that we're increasing the the diversity, genetic diversity um, to give them the best shot at survival in the wild. If, if these happen to be the last individuals of the species, um, we'll also continue to do surveys just to, to see, if, you know, if there's more out there as that would give us a better understanding of their status in the wild um, and the, sort of the threats and how we, how we move forward in reestablishing the species in the wild. Cause that ultimately that's the end goal of any conservation project is establishing the species in the wild and, and captive breeding is one right. tool in the toolbox that we are trying to use to, to, to do that. And it's, it's a common um, tool with amphibians because in the wild, at least 90% of tadpoles die before they turn into frogs. They're, they're predated, you know, yeah, high, things high in the wild. mortality rate. Uh, yeah. And that's the strategy, very high mortality. So in captivity, you can basically, you can have a, you know, close to hundred percent survival rate. So you can really quickly boost populations in the wild by rearing tadpoles in captivity and then, you know, introducing them when they're, past that most vulnerable stage so that's a sort of a common strategy with amphibians is captive breeding and then yeah
1: absolutely and well we are rooting for your team and for romeo and for his juliet and i'm at the edge of my seats this is this is like better than any reality show i have Probably, I'm obviously an animal lover and uh, <laughs> loving So to me, this, this is what I want to, the news I want to focus on. And so we'll, we'll have to make sure we stay connected and that our, um, and for our listeners out there too, we'll put our show notes together that will link you to, uh, Dr. Robin Moore's, uh, he has a great Facebook page and then of course global wildlife conservation as well. And, For the average person that is a listener um, that maybe isn't able to be as heavily involved in conservation as they would like, do you have any advice about what people can do to help these endangered amphibians and, and, or reptiles in general? What, what's the average person to do?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think one of the Unique things about amphibians and reptiles is that so many people actually have them either in their backyard or close by. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I hear a lot of stories of people saying, I used to see them. I used to have them. Um, I haven't seen them in years. So I think one thing is sort of on that local level, just understanding um, what, what is native to the area, what people can do to encourage frogs, toads, newts, whether it's building a pond, helping build a pond, um, being involved in a local group that's, you know, you have these local frog watching groups yes, where people yes. go out mm-hmm. and, and provide really important data on the status of amphibians, because I think long-term data sets are really important to understand mm-hmm. um, what's happening with them, Are are they being influenced by climate change you know are they changing breeding timing and behavior are they moving so just everybody i think uh can find out what's happening and contribute to that and i think on a broader scale you know it sometimes feels like these things are far away and removed from our everyday lives but i think our our choices on a daily basis really affect that you know what we're buying what we're you know, are we buying products with palm oil that's contributing to deforestation in Indonesia, for instance? Um, just being aware of, you know, are we using plastics that are, that are being discarded and living in the environment and
1: ending, ending we... up in water streams and watersheds?
0: Eggs, exactly. Are we using pesticides? A lot of the chemicals that are, are used in gardens or get into the water table and, and I mean, not only affect the amphibians you know ultimately affect us so i i think being attuned to the amphibians and to what what's happening is ultimately being attuned to the health or, of the ecosystems that we're also living on i think i think this idea that we're sort of above and separate and apart from nature is really sort of arrogant and dangerous
1: and naive. we are
0: naive oh. totally naive and we are part we are as much a part of these ecosystems um, as the frogs. So I think just reconnecting with, with our ecosystems and environment and understanding the rhythm of the wildlife and of the land, I think is just a really, uh for me, it's sort of, well, it's very therapeutic. It's, it's, it's just being attuned to our environment. And I think it's, that's very ingrained in us to, to sort of connect in that way. So I think just con- being more connected and and the, the power of just ed, being educated and informed and making good choices and encouraging other people to make good choices, I think will build an army of good stewards of our ecosystems that we all rely on, not just the frogs and the newts and the salamanders, but right. us.
1: Right. Oh, absolutely. Dr. Moore. And I, and I think that that's, I encourage everybody listening to Tell a friend today about the Swankus Water Frog, about Romeo and his story. It's it's a really fascinating and fun and hopeful story. It's not finished yet, right? This is like this is like the it's, it's not, not finished, finished. and it, <laughs> you know it's like the it's like the final episode of The Bachelorette or something. You know, The Bachelor. Like, what's going to happen? And so, so get yeah, your fr- yeah, get and I think part- excited about it now, and then st- stay tuned.
0: Yeah. And part of the, this, the story with Romeo and Juliet is we're we're also trying to, uh, make it easy for people to help save this species. So, uh, we, you know, part with Match to raise support. The next step will be raising support for new housing for the frogs to, you know, they're going to need some, somewhere to live. Yeah. You've got
1: a, you got a thousand tadpoles. What are you going to do with them?
0: Exactly. So (laughs) we're, we're setting up a register so that people can go in and, and (laughs) support. Uh, different aspects of their needs.
1: Oh my gosh. Uh, is it like a baby register or like a, a like yeah. something you wish for when you're getting married or having children yeah, or something like that? Like a
0: pl- planning for the future register. Exactly. <laughs> I
1: love it. Oh my gosh, Dr. Moore. This is just, you're, you are making my whole entire week. This is amazing.
0: So well, I think just being aware and, and supporting these efforts, it goes a long way. You know, uh, we, we certainly as a group, we we don't charge overhead. So when we get donations, a 100% of it goes to the ground where it really counts. And I think that's a, a big part of, um you know, we're trying to build up the partners on the ground who are doing the conservation work themselves um, and trying to make, yeah.
1: And just so our listeners know, that's one of the things I love about global wildlife conservation as far as um, you can be guaranteed that your dot every dollar that you donate goes direct hundred percent goes directly to saving the species on the ground costs, uh, no overhead, none of that kind of stuff. And so that's, that's pretty rare in a lot of conservation organizations. And it, it's uh why you guys are one of my favorites and really sets you apart and And of course, you're doing wonderful work. I mean, I'm a a huge fan.
0: Well, we don't, you know, we don't want to reinvent the wheel. We don't set up offices in the field. We do everything through existing local partners. And and by keeping small and and nimble and and streamlined in terms of staffing, we don't have huge overhead costs. So we are able to just fully support the partners who are well-placed to do the work. So it's really investing in... In people and, and, and cultivating, you know, conservation leadership, um, in, in those places that need it and that right. have the talent. Uh,
1: yeah. Well, trust me, I look, you guys are never hiring. So I'm always looking. <laughs> uh, my plate's pretty full, <laughs> but yes, no, uh, I, I do love it. I love what you do. And so how, how can people find out more information about, your work. Uh You're also an avid photographer, an author, podcaster. Uh, of course, we'll link on our show notes, uh, Global Wildlife Conservation and the Swankist Water Frog. But how could people get more in touch with you or your organization's work and Romeo?
0: Yeah. So uh, our organization's work and Romeo's story will be Rolled out on our, our website, which is globalwildlife.org and, and also across our, we were, we're active on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. So I would highly recommend that, you know, we're, we're telling a lot of using the stories on Instagram to, to sort of really connect people, um, with these mm-hmm. stories. Um, so I would highly recommend following Global Wildlife on, on Instagram, uh, and any, any social media platforms that you, you use. Um, and then personally, I also, you know, Instagram's one of my main sources for, uh, you know, posting my work. Um, so Robin D. Moore. And I'd say those are those are good ways. You know, I think we're although we obviously we have our website, I think on a daily basis, a lot of people are connecting with us on, on social.
1: Excellent. Well, good. And and now, Dr. Moore, my last question is, do you have any advice for students or people that are interested in a career in herpetology or amphibian conservation
0: be tenacious i i think um, it it's much about networks um, I think for me you know conservation it's a tough field because uh you know we're not in it for the money uh opportunities. <laughs> Opportunities can be few and far between. Um, so I think you really have to create them. Um, and I think early on in my career, I would very actively go to conferences, um, try to present whenever I could um, because you just have to it's the hustle. you have to meet the right people, build relationships. you know I think the more people know you, know who you are. If you've met someone multiple times, they're more likely to think of you if a PhD scholarship comes up than you know, or, or a
1: job uh, opening,
0: or a job <laughs> opening exactly. <laughs> so you know, I yeah, it's yeah, I I could never have predicted the path that I have taken to get where I am today. So you know, it's one. Was it Mike Tyson who said it's great having a plan until you're punched in the face? you. you
1: <laughs> I love it. I'm going to steal that one. You,
0: yeah. <laughs> you can have the best lead. I, but I think it's good to have a vision of where you want to be. I sure. Think,
1: you got to have know, that. You, yeah.
0: You got to have that. And I think certainly if we're sort of l- looking at those people who are movers and shakers, they have a real, just a clear passion and a vision for where they want to be and where their strengths lie. Um, So I think just experimenting to find out where your your strengths lie, where your passion is, and figuring that out so that you can be really attuned to making those opportunities happen, to do that, and to try and get paid for that. That's always the, the balance. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm
1: having a tough time figuring that part out.
0: That, that, <laughs> that, that's, that's the hard part, right? But I did a lot of volunteering. You know, I, I worked for a group called Coral Key Conservation where Mm -hmm. I did three and a half months in the Philippines, basically working for free, you know, but I was just getting my feet wet and building, building that, uh, building that CV.
1: And definitely, I think it's just about opening doors and meeting people and uh, you know, top secret, I probably shouldn't share on the air, but all the work that I do currently, the podcast for uh, fun as a passion project, but then even, my little side hustle jobs, teaching and doing some, uh, some research on the side, I would do it for free. I mean, I just love, I love it so much. And I think that's when, you know, you're in the right, in the right realm that you still show up excited to be there, even if it is for free or for low money and things like that. And so, but, but then with that passion, I think you can build it into a real, career where you can actually you know, feed your kids <laughs> as well yeah. and, and we, I, th- I think that we need more we I need think... more scientists and conservationists and storytellers and commu- and uh science communicators out there and people that are just passionate about wildlife and the earth in general we we need you so come absolutely join us. and
0: i think i absolutely and just think outside the box you know um i think the the landscape is evolving so rapidly um, when I started my career, social media didn't exist right. you know now a lot of what I'm doing is uh it's communications it's a website social media none of that existed when I was at university right uh, yeah so I couldn't have known, but I think it's it's just it's it's staying attuned to those changes and finding your your strengths and opportunities and, and making opportunities happen. I think nobody's excited about you as you are. And I think that's something I learned early on. You know, I would go up and excitedly introduce myself and my interests. And people don't really care <laughs> until I prove.
1: Yeah, I know, it's true.
0: Until yeah. I sort of was tenacious and was still there four years later. And they're like, okay, this guy's kind of serious. Yeah. Uh, and I think you just have to prove that you're not a sort of flash in the pan, like, that you're you have the grit to stick with it even if things are tough. Yes. And you're like, I'm still here and I still want to do this and I'm committed to it. And I think you just have to absolutely I think grit is probably the most important quality when it comes to finding your your path in conservation.
1: Ah. I love it Dr. Moore. It has been such a blast, informative, fun talking with you today. We learned about quotes from Mike Tyson. We learned about having some grit, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we got to hear stories of your childhood. And most importantly, you were able to really share with us a story about Romeo and the swankest water frog, and why it's critical that we do something now. We have the opportunity. We ha- all the pieces of the puzzle are in line. in We just need to keep, keep on keeping on doing it. And so with that, of course, we're going to need some funding and, but the stars are aligning for Romeo and Juliet and it's going to be a really exciting story to follow. So I I thank you for your time. I thank you for you and your staff um, both in DC and then of course down in Bolivia for all this hard work. It's just really hopeful, really incredible. And I hope the listeners today will share the story with a friend. And if you don't have a dollar to donate, you can donate your your social media platform to tell the story of Romeo and get other people excited because everybody has like a rich aunt somewhere that would maybe want to hear this story, this story and perhaps donate a dollar or so. And so thank you. And um, to everyone out there, I'm going to post the show notes uh, and where you'll be able to follow up a little bit more with Dr. Robin Moore and his work at Glo- Global Wildlife Conservation and be able to link you to his book in search of lost frogs and also his podcast, no filter. And that's for all you photography buffs out there. It's a, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Moore, it's a a podcast all about photography of wildlife or just in general, what's it?
0: It, It's, it's, it's kind of about the journeys of, mainly national geographic photographers and how they've got where they are and how they balance the sort of mastery of their craft with finding meaning in their work and monetizing it so i think it's it's there's a lot in there that's similar to people pursuing a career in conservation because i think we all we all want to balance those those three things um and how we do that and how we find our path uh i i started it because i wanted sort of scratching my own itch to to learn how other people were were doing that. And I think there's a lot of hopefully valuable lessons in there for anybody, whether you're interested in photography or not. These are just people who have followed their passion and made a made a living out of it.
1: Well Dr. Moore, I look forward to checking out your podcast called No Filter, where you, as one of my conservation heroes, are sharing inspiring stories from National Geographic photographers. It sounds like a winner to me. I can't wait to check it out tonight. And I encourage all the listeners to as well, because podcasts are fun, right? Everybody likes them. So if you love animals and wildlife or just storytelling in general, check that out. And all the other information will be on our show notes. But yeah, go not if you're in the car, but when you, when you're parked, Make sure and go to Facebook right now and Instagram and like Global Wildlife Conservation so you can get updates and follow Romeo and his journey with Juliet and learn more about the swankus water frog. So thank you, Dr. Moore, so much. I hope we can stay in touch. And I really enjoyed our conversation today.
0: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And I hope people do sign up. People can sign up with their email address to, to keep abreast of Romeo and Juliet's story. And even a dollar can buy worms for Romeo and Juliet for a week. You know, every, everything, every little helps keep them happy and healthy. And uh, hopefully will help them consummate their relationship and save the species.
1: Oh, I love it. Will do. Thank you so much.
0: Take Thank care. Thank
1: you,
0: Angie. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.